Today's reading is from Romans 12, 9-21. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When you hear the word peace, what comes to mind? I was in high school toward the end of the Vietnam War. Uh, I was close to being drafted and Richard Nixon or rescinded the draft, but I remember getting slightly nervous because I had registered for the draft. And this was a time of, of protests and uprising on college campuses across our country. And so this iconic symbol was seen everywhere. It was on protest posters, it was on tie-dyed t-shirts, it was on jewelry, it was on album covers. The peace symbol was everywhere, and peace became uh, synonymous with, uh, with an absence of war, specifically in Southeast Asia. But now it's 2015. It's 2015, and for many people today, perhaps peace might become equated with a decrease in mass shootings. A mass shooting is technically defined as involving uh, four, four gun deaths. After the most recent mass shooting in a, at a campus in Oregon, uh, this image was tweeted. The number of mass shootings, the number of days in 2015, the number of mass shootings uh, so far in the year. As I thought about that, I, I thought about t- the word peace, and in today's world, peace might be equated with a decrease in violence in American society. Or it might be at least equated with something as simple as a, as a decrease in conflict in our families, our homes, uh, perhaps in our relationships, our work environment, our marriage. The point is that all of us come with some kind of association when we hear the word peace. None of us are free from, from having some kind of an understanding of, of, of peace. And so my question is, how might we encounter the term, how might we understand the term when we encounter it in the Bible? Because we're going to be looking today at Paul's use of peace in Galatians 5.22. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is peace. 
And for those of you who are new to Grace, we've been in a conversation around the theme of transformed into his image. And we've been wrestling with some questions. We've been exploring some questions, some key questions. I don't want to put them up on the screen behind me. First is, what does God want for us? Not does, what does God want from us. And I think a lot of people view Christianity as, here's this deity who's always demanding something of us, when in reality, God wants something for us. And in this case, what we've looked at so far is that God wants to transform us into the likeness of Christ. He wants us to look like Jesus. He wants us to, to be like Jesus. And he describes what that looks like in part in the text that we're focusing on, which is Galatians 5, 22 to 25, which is called the fruit of the Spirit. So this is what Jesus looks like, and this is what God wants to make us look like. And it's not to be more spiritual, but rather it's to be more human. It's to be more fully alive. It's to be more fully human. And to be what, the way he describes in Galatians 5 is to be, to be tr- truly human. And the second question is, why, why does God want to do this? And the answer I propose is because God loves us. Because God loves us. And that, that's hard for a lot of us to, to really to embrace is the fact that God really does love us. And this transformation flows out of his unfathomable love for us. He doesn't transform us because he doesn't like us and he wants to clean something up in us that kind of disgusts him. But rather, he loves us so much, he wants us to be fully human and fully alive in the life that he gives to us in Jesus the final question that has been motivating this is how? How does God transform us? How does he make us into a people who are marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness? All those things that are described in Galatians 5. And Galatians 5 tells us that transformation involves the work of the Spirit. It involves the work of the Spirit who produces what are called the fruit of the Spirit. So that's, that's by way of review for those of you who are new. Now you're caught up and that's what we've been looking at. So now to Galatians 5, why, what does Paul mean when he uses this word peace? If you're not in the text yet, turn to Galatians 5. There's a blue uh, Bible underneath your seat. It's always good to have one open so you can uh, look down at it. And I find that when I'm listening to someone else, if my mind wanders, I just go back, take my eyes down to the text and just keep reading the text during this time. What, what does Paul mean by the word peace? Well, one of the things that he does make very clear is what peace is not, what peace isn't. Look at verse 19. He says, Now the works of the flesh, the impulses of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And then you go over to verse 26. And he talks about being conceited and provoking one another and envying one another. So those are things that that we can clearly say that is not peace, all right? Now, I want you to, to, to just pause for a second. And this is written to churches, churches in Asia Minor. Okay? Let that sit for just a second. This is written to churches. This is what some theologians would call ethical realism. Meaning that what what can we expect in practice of those who claim to be followers of Jesus? And Paul includes this possibility that it's very possible that we can treat each other like this within the family of God. 
That's ethical realism. And certainly Paul, this is not the only place where Paul addresses conflict and tension and relationships, broken relationships. There are other letters in which he addresses that. First Corinthians is one of them. It's just filled with problems in this church that he's addressing. And that's the reason for this image. This, you can't read the top part, but it says, a modest proposal for peace. Let the Christians of the world agree that they will not kill each other. I have that framed as a poster, and it's hanging in my office. And every time I come out of my office, that's what I see as I'm going out the door. And it caught my attention when I first saw it because it says it's a modest proposal. And what might seem modest to us is way beyond our scope as it has been for most of of Christian history. And this is why we have the Spirit. To press into relationships that we might otherwise walk away from when we are wounded. And so there's a couple of things that struck me as I was reflecting on this, this ethical realism and the fact that Paul is addressing this to churches. And the first thing is it's just a couple practical observations. The first is this, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. I've had people tell me, you know, I, I was hurt so I left grace to find another church. I've heard that, I've heard that more than once. I understand it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's unfortunate that we hurt each other. But at the same time, I think, I, I think I'm on good grounds to say we can expect to be hurt by each other. I expect to be wounded by people and I expect to wound others, both in my own family and in the family of God. I think that's realism. And I think I shouldn't be surprised if someone does wound me. I don't necessarily enjoy it. I don't look forward to it. But I think that's, it's realistic. The second observation is that the family of God is a training center for other relationships in life. The family of God is a training center. I really believe it's a training center for other relationships in life. And my proof for this is Ephesians 5. If you want to turn over there just real quickly. This is just more of a kind of an aside here, but I think it's it's one that the Lord gave to me this week as I was preparing this. If you look at Ephesians 5, Paul uh, says, and this is again Paul, in verse 15, he says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he goes, then in verse 22, which has this black heading in my Bible, which was not there when it was originally written, nor were the verse numbers. The, the, the Greek says, um, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. The, the translators have put in the word submit because they picked it up from verse 21, but in the Greek it's not there. So really what he's talking about here is he's first of all saying, within the body of Christ, you need to learn how to, to live with each other in ways that you love each other and you give deference to each other. And that's what that submission is, is treating someone with greater honor than yourself. Having a posture where you honor people over yourself. And he says then it's to spill into the, into the marriage as well. But notice where he starts. I, and I never hear anybody talk about this. 
he starts first with the family of God. And and I think there's something to be said here that he says that, that if you really want to learn how to make your other relationships in life work, invest yourself in the family of God. And by invest, I mean giving yourself relationally, giving yourself spiritually, emotionally, giving yourself financially to others within the family of God. Why? Why is that so central? Listen to me carefully. And you can disagree with me, but just at least listen to my reasoning. When you practice that kind of investment towards people for whom you have no blood connection, they're not your blood relatives. And it would be easy people to just walk away from and to say, forget it. But instead, you stay committed to them out of love, out of a desire to to see them become better and you to work through relationships and to mature through it. When you practice that in the family of God, it will shape your other relationships. It will shape your other relationships. I can honestly say that my marriage is better because of what I have gone through here at this church. Because of the things that God has brought me through, they have helped to shape me, which in turn, I've brought that shaping into my marriage. I brought that into my parenting. I brought that into my other relationships. But this is a training center right here. And because I've, I think the Lord has given me that understanding that this is a training center, this is not just something I do on Sunday morning. This is certainly not a job for me. But this is the family of God. And this is a, a, a shaping place that can transform all the other relationships in life. The third observation is the church is a community that practices our faith together with others. And the key word is practices, that practices our faith together with others. I was at a uh, seminar recently uh, in which um, the president of the Barna Group, David Kinneman, was speaking. A really good speaker and very, very real, very human, very warm person. And I say that because his main job is polling, P-O-L-L-I-N-G, polling and giving results of polling. And you would think that, you know, it might produce a personality that might reflect that. I won't go any further. But... um, (laughs) I was about ready to say something else, but fortunately, there's a few filters left in my mind. (laughs) And he was talking about why the younger generations leave the church, and one of his reasons that he gave to us was this. He says that they see the church as a bunch of talk. They see the church as a bunch of talk. And what he was pointing out was that, that information that's disconnected from immersive practice will never really transform people. And that's something that I've reflected on because that for many of the, of the years that as I started here as a pastor, I was basically trained in information dispensing. dispensing. And I really believe that if I just gave people the really accurate, good information, that it would really transform them. And I think it's only recently that, it, you know, maybe the Lord has really opened up my eyes through a series of events to see that, no, there has to be practice. There has to be places where we step into practice. That's why we're talking about everybody being in a triad, because in a triad, you're forced to look at your life and you're forced to look at your practice. What, are, what am I doing? How am I listening to Jesus? And what am I doing about it? Those are the two questions. And so that practice is what brings transformation, stepping into that practice and having other people that know the practices you're intending to step into, that's what produces that transformation. But practice is, is messy. 
And often, information collecting is preferred over practice. Why? Because it's much cleaner. It's less risky to collect and categorize and critique information and to live it out in the messiness of relationships with other people. And practice is also messy because we have to embrace being novices and beginners instead of experts. And our culture is all about becoming an expert, being proficient in something. I like the way Ben Sternke says it. He says, we have to fail to learn and learn to fail. And this can feel embarrassing or we can feel ashamed when it's much less risky to just talk about what we know. It's humbling to fail, especially in front of people who know you or might be following you in some way. But it's absolutely necessary if we want to see the kingdom of God spring up in our relationships. Why? Because the kingdom of God grows out of practice. It's about our practicing something. So we won't always be good at it. So back to Galatians 5. If Galatians 5 describes relationships, as we've seen so far, that where peace is, is not present, then what does peace look like in practice? Well, if you're in Galatians 5, the word peace is derived from the Hebrew idea of shalom. And shalom is not just a negative quality, meaning the absence of conflict, but it's also something that's positive. The Hebrew idea of, of shalom involves the enjoyment of solid, life-giving relationships with others, both within the community and, and in the wider community. It implies a fullness of life. It, it implies um, life that is lived in right relationship in all spheres of life. That's the Hebrew idea of shalom. So it's not something that was just limited to like the spiritual category of, of coming to church and being a Christian at church or doing a quiet time or something like that. It's much larger. It encompasses all of life. And so when Paul draws upon, when he uses the word peace in the Greek, he's drawing upon the Hebrew idea of shalom, which is a very large and encompassing idea that, that, that deals with all of life and with all of the relationships in life. And so what this does tell me is that when, when Paul talks about peace, he's not primarily talking about subjective feelings. So if you were headed there when I started, what comes to mind is subjective feelings. He's not primarily talking about subjective feelings. He's talking about the way we live out our relationships in all spheres of life. And certainly in this text, the impulses of the flesh lead to strained and broken relationships, whereas peace is about flourishing relationships. But a word definition alone is not sufficient, and that would be unfair to just say, well, here's the word definition. Because remember, this is about God wanting us to be like Jesus. This is about the fruit of the Spirit showing us what Jesus is like and that God wants us to look like Jesus. God is for us and Jesus is the pattern for our transformation. And so sharing in the new life of Jesus, his resurrection life, uh, we, we prayed about that in, in beforehand and, and someone was praying about this, us entering into the fullness of this resurrection life. This resurrection life is not something that's limited to just some small little spiritual corner of our life, like church. It's intended to transform our whole way of life. Jesus wants to transform our whole way of life. That's why when Paul in Galatians 5, 15, and 26 talks about walking, you know what he's talking about? He's drawing upon, again, the Hebrew. Under He was a Jew. He draws upon the Old Testament. And to talk about walking in the Old Testament is to talk about your entire sphere of life, your entire way of life. Uh, you may be familiar with Psalm 1. It begins with, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. There it is. 
or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. The transformation that Jesus wants to bring is intended to, to, to cover all parts of our lives. And because it's intended to cover all aspects of our lives, I hope that you're already headed there. It can't be something that we just do by ourselves. It can't be a, a, a self-improvement project. It can't be a result of just following Christian rules. But rather, it's a byproduct of the Spirit. It's the Spirit who produces the responses and the character of Jesus in us. And I hope that perhaps as we've been going through this and we keep on landing on the role that the Spirit plays, that, you will, that you'll be realizing again and again that if, if you have the life of Jesus, then you have the presence of the Spirit in your life as well. And it's the Spirit who wants to do this, even in times when you don't feel like it or you feel like you're failing. The Spirit of God wants to do this in your life and in my life. So Paul's describing the difference that Jesus makes as a result of him being for us. He gives us his grace and his life. He's with us. He says, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. And he'll be in us. John 14, 17 says he will be not just with us, but in us through the Spirit. So finally, just what does this look like in practice? What difference does the Holy Spirit make in the middle of messy relationships? What does this peace look like? Well, to talk about the Spirit does not exclude our own role. We do have a role to play. I'd like for you to look at a couple of texts, just three. Look at Romans 12, verse 18. I want to show you a couple of connections here. Romans 12, verse 18, just a couple of pages over. <clears throat> Page 948 in the Blue Bibles. Romans 12, 18. Again, Paul. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written... That's verse 19. Let's go back to verse 18. <laughs> I knew that didn't sound right. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably. That's what I was looking for, with all. It's, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now look at 14.19. Just take your eyes over the page. 14.19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So you see, we do have a role to play in this peace stuff. Turn to 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 11. And there's other texts, but I just want to give you a taste for three. He's giving his final greetings and he says, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And you can also look at 2 Corinthians 5, 11 to 21, but I'm not going to read that. Here's what I want to say to you. The Spirit empowers us to pursue peace. The Spirit empowers us to pursue peace. The fact that he tells us we have a role to play, but also it's a byproduct of the Spirit who lives in us means that you put those two together, you connect them together, and you come away with this, that the Spirit empowers us to pursue peace. The Spirit empowers us to pursue peace. So rather than running from the messiness of relationships the Spirit empowers us to move toward others we'd prefer to avoid. You ever been there? Been there this week? Been there recently? Maybe there's someone that comes to mind right now that you're like, yeah, I just, I, I avoid the person. But the Spirit empowers us to move toward these people for the sake of promoting love, of bringing life to these people, of 
bringing flourishing, healing, and reconciliation. That's what the Spirit wants to do through us. And you may be saying, well, this seems so hard. It seems way too hard. You don't know my situation. You don't know the person I'm thinking about right now. And you're right, I don't. But I want to show you the dynamic, just in my final words to you this morning. I want to show you the dynamic that compels Paul to say this, to do this, and to urge his followers then and now to do this. So I, this is the key piece. Here's the dynamic. Lest you just walk away hearing, I need to do this, and I need to rely on the Spirit to do this. Look at Galatians 2.20. It's up on the screen behind me. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is Paul talking very personally. But the first thing I want you to notice is the word, the phrase, Christ in me. This is part of the dynamic that compels Paul to move in this direction toward people and messiness that he'd rather avoid and and to go into it believing that the Spirit of God can do something. It's because Christ is in me. I love Eugene Peterson. He's a favorite writer of mine, and, and he, was, um, he wrote a foreword to a book I just started. It's called Servants and Fools. It's a, called A Biblical Theology of Leadership. And he writes a foreword, and the foreword just arrested me because he said these words. He says, two things basic to what defines the Christian way of life are radically counter to most things North American. First, the Christian way is not about us. It is about God. The Christian way of life is not a life project for becoming a better person. We are in on it, to be sure, but we are not the subject. Nor are we the action. We get included by means of a few prepositions. God with us, Matthew 1.23. Christ in me, Galatians 2.20. God for us, Romans 8.31. With, in, and for powerful, connecting, relation-forming words, but none of them naming us as either subject or predicate, we are the tag end of a prepositional phrase. That is masterful. Sorry, I like reading great writers, and that is a masterful line. I wish I could steal it and say I wrote it. We are the tag end of a prepositional phrase. He says, the great weakness of North American spirituality is that it is all about us. Fulfilling our potential, getting in on the blessings of God, expanding our influence, finding our gifts, getting a handle on principles by which we can get an edge on the competition. But the more there is of us, the less there is of God. He says, it is true that sooner or later we are invited or commanded to do something. But in that doing, we never become the subject of the Christian life, nor do we perform the action of the Christian life. What we are invited or commanded into is what I call prepositional participation. The prepositions that join us to God and his action in us and in the world, the with, the in, and the for, are very important, but they are essentially a matter of the ways and means of participating in what God is doing. That's beautiful. We're invited to participate in what God is doing in the world. And he's empowered us, and he is for us, he is with us, and he is in us. 
to participate in what he is doing in the world. And every person that you encounter is somebody that God wants to do something in their lives and he may want to do it through you because he wants to partner with you. He wants to partner with me. The second piece from Galatians 2.20 is the Christ event. And, and I don't have time to develop this, but, but this was an important piece for Paul. And basically, he had received this grace. And in the first century, understanding of what it means to receive a, great, receive a gift, there was always a relationship implied with the gift, between the gift giver and the, and the receiver of the gift. But there's also reciprocity that was assumed as well. That if you received a gift because you had a relationship with the person, there was an assumption that there would be reciprocity, that you would somehow show your love and your thankfulness to the person who gave the gift. And Paul could not get over the fact that he had received grace, and he understood that to receive a gift was to be entering into a relationship with the gift giver, not just once, thanks for the gift, and I go off and I no longer have a relationship with you, but it was to enter into a relationship with the gift giver so that one's life was lived as a reflection of reciprocity, of thanks and grace back to God. And one way that Paul showed that was by realizing he was to give this grace to others. And that was a dynamic for Paul. And this, was a, this, was, this is what motivated him. And let me tell you what this giving grace looks like. In this context, it means absorbing misunderstanding, and it means absorbing the anxiety and fears of others. It means, as you're stepping into these relationships to bring peace, it means receiving pain. It means death to self-protection. It means that if you step into the, the, the way of life that Paul is describing, you will take upon yourself pain. You will take upon yourself misunderstanding. And if your goal in life is to always be understood, you will have to die to that. You will realize that one of the things that you want most of all is to protect yourself, to protect your reputation, to protect yourself from being hurt. And this way of life is not like that. Why? Because Jesus himself is our model. Philippians 2, what did he do? He entered into the way of pain, of misunderstanding, and of death so that we might have life, right? And he leaves us that path to follow. It means being ready to move toward peacemaking and reconciliation even when everything in me wants to defend or settle a score or set someone straight or nurse my wounds as a victim of someone's injustice. Why? Because there's a different way that's opened up because of the Christ event. There's a different way that's made possible because of the Christ event. Galatians 2.20. And that's why the Spirit is given to us. Because I can say, I can step into this because I expect the Spirit to show up and this is a supernatural response. This is not Lou Huseman. This is the Spirit of God stepping in in a different way. So I want to give you some space now to to think about a person that maybe God has brought to mind that today maybe there's a person that you have been finding difficult to move toward in life and God wants to place that person in front of you to say, look, try me out on this. Try me out. I want to bring reconciliation and healing and I want to bring peace. So I want to give you just a moment to just think about that name. The two questions I want to give to you is who might Jesus want you to move toward in love? Maybe a family member, a neighbor, a coworker, roommate, or friend. 
And then how might Jesus want to love them through you? Notice the order of those words. How might Jesus want to love them through you? Not how should you love them, but how might Jesus want to love them? What does Jesus' love look like through you? But I want you to just focus on the first one today, this morning, because I think when I was up two weeks ago, I asked you to think about a person that God might want you to love intentionally. And it's very possible that you avoided this person that God may be putting on your mind today because it's easy to to avoid people that create problems for us or that are difficult. Just take a moment in the quietness and write down that name on a piece of paper and then I'm going to pray for us for those names, okay? So just quietly take a moment, take that piece of paper out, the bulletin or whatever, and write on it with a pencil. Just the name. So at least you're being accountable before God. God, give me the name, listen to him, and just write it down, then we'll pray for those names. If that name came to you just, uh, and you wrote it down, it probably should come pretty quickly because we're probably ready for this. The way that we live our lives, we're aware of these people. Just hold up that piece of paper. I'm not going to see the names. No one else is going to see it, but let's pray. Just symbolically hold up the name. If you have a name, okay? So there's a couple, three. Let's, don't be afraid, all right? I'm, you know, no one's going to judge you, all right? You're just being honest. And appreciate that. Great, great. All right, let's, let's keep those up and let's pray for those. Father, um, you know what is going on in each of these relationships and you know the people who have taken a step to respond to you to say they want to trust you to, to be with them and for them and in them as they step into these relationships in a very purposeful way, trusting that you will show them what your love looks like as they embrace these people rather than running or keeping them at arm's length. So I ask for your special um, grace upon them, that they would sense your presence in these conversations that they might have or just in the next time they encounter them, that it might not be overly awkward, but that they would, they would sense a warmth of your love that is, that is supernatural. They know that it isn't coming just from them, but from you. So I ask for your, your, your filling, for your presence, and for your leading and direction and all these people who have purposely offered themselves up to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.